listening to The Currency. I'm your host. My name is Mike Gaston, and I'm glad to have you guys along. This is episode number 116-116 of the podcast. I'm recording this on Sunday, February 6th, 2022, and uh, glad to be behind the mic, as always. Glad to have you guys along, as always. I feel a certain compulsion at the beginning of the show to kind of have this upbeat uh, radio guy voice. (laughs) Hey, welcome. And then you go from that kind of tone to how do you shift into your content? How do you make this shift from radio guy, podcast guy, into let's talk a little bit? And today, maybe that's more uh, salient to me because I feel like just having a little bit of a casual, informal discussion with all y'all. I uh, was listening to a podcast recently, just yesterday, actually, I was taking the dog for a walk and... It was a really good one. I listened to a podcast by a guy named, guy named Paul Vanderclay. Paul Vanderclay. He's a he's a a minister. He's a reverend, uh, and I think he's of a Calvinist line. I, I can't remember Church of Christ or what he's what 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 gang he's part of. But what's really fascinating about Vanderclay, I'd love to get him on here as a guest sometime. But he's got this really interesting approach to content. He puts out YouTube videos, he puts out podcasts. A lot of times it's the same thing. He's just maybe making a video and and publishes it to his podcast. I tend to listen to the podcast versus watch his videos. And they're long. Like this podcast episode that I was listening to, it's well over two hours long. And on this, he is interviewing someone, a guy named BJ Campbell. Now, BJ Campbell is a guy who runs a substack called Handwaving Freakoutery. Uh, which essentially they're trying to, he's trying to take a look through statistics to discover reality. This guy's an engineer uh, by trade. I don't know if he's a civic engineer, civil engineer, or a civic engineer, civil engineer, or a uh, mechanical engineer, but that's what he does full time is engineering. And he's kind of got this side side thing, uh, this hand-waving freakoutery. And he's really interesting to listen to. Little, uh, no, I won't get into the quality of the discussions, meaning the um, aesthetic qualities of the discussion, but really fascinating discussion between the two of them. And Campbell brought out some great, great stuff. Now, Vander Clay's an avowed Christian. He's a minister, follower of Christ. And B.J. Campbell, it wasn't clear to me where he's coming from. He grew up, uh, he grew up I want to say Quaker, but isn't Quaker anymore. He seems friendly to the concept of the faith. I think he's a little reductionist. I'm inferring this from the things he was saying, but he tends to treat the faith from a reductionary standpoint, meaning, you know, it's a material world that we live in uh, and you can make good cases for religion because religion, you know, this is an example. It helps order society. It teaches people right and wrong. It teaches them how to get along with each other and so on. So it's kind of reductionist, ignoring that the um, transcendent aspects, life after death and so on, uh, and just talking about religion in the ways that it's good for society, good for life here on earth. And, you know, those are fine arguments, but they, they tend to be reductionist. They reduce religion down to just material benefit. And, uh, and there certainly is a material benefit to, to good faith. But on the other hand, uh, there's a lot more going on. One could argue, <laughs> especially if one holds to the faith. So fascinating discussion between the two of them. And I wanted to share kind of one thought that really stood out to me in this discussion. I'll leave a link to this podcast episode to uh, Paul Vanderclay's 
podcast. It's episode 1,153. And that gives you an idea that kind of the volume of content that Paul puts out. You can't keep up with it. I mean, you literally have to be unemployed, uh, living on uh, government checks to be able to just spend all the time to listen to all the content he puts out there. What's interesting about Paul and his content is I don't think... You know, I, I respect it. I almost want to emulate him in a way because what he's doing, he's not out there saying, let me teach you, let me show you, let me tell you. He's having conversations. And, and the deeper kind of thread is like, how do we find meaning in this world? So I tend to roll my eyes when people are like, you know, I just want to live in the question. I just want to have conversations. You know, that, that was very big in the emergent church. Some of you might not be aware of that, but there's this movement. It was essentially postmodernism applied to Christianity. You end up with kind of a Gnostic, uh, progressive, materialistic uh, approach to the faith. It's it's unorthodox. It's heterodox in many ways. But but you end up in this kind of we're more interested in the question. Uh, you, you got these different you know ministers that kind of made it big for a while. They had you know they, they the books and so on. This was probably ten years ago and or more. And, and it was a very progressive Christianity. Now, it's kind of evolved into something else. You don't hear people talk about the, the emergent church anymore, but it's essentially social justice, wokeism, and progressivism applied to Christianity and given a modern, a modern skin, if you will. And a lot of, a lot of uh, churches now that you see that are embracing transgenderism, that are embracing you know, homosexuality, that are embracing um, you know, material science as savior and so on, uh, embracing things like social justice and Black Lives Matter, you know, and all, all this, like, we have to make things equitable. And these are the churches that kind of, that were aligned with, they weren't solely, but they were aligned with this emergent church. And that was really big on, we're more interested in the questions, the question that we don't want answers. We want questions. We want to ask questions. We want to deconstruct our faith. We want to, to live in the question. And it's all about the narrative and the story that we're crafting. It's all subjective and relative. <laughs> you get to this point where there's no truth anymore. And uh, so Paul is not one of these people. As far as I can tell, I, I think he's pretty orthodox, small o, in his faith, as far as I can tell. At the same time, I think he's trying to find ways that the faith can retain its truth and become uh, suited for, if, if that's the right word, and I don't know that he'd use this language, this is me trying to articulate clumsily what I'm inferring from his work, uh, suited for the world we're finding ourselves in. The world is upside down. Now, you could make the argument that, hey, it's just a, we don't need to suit to anything. That's the problem. We're always trying to become relevant. I don't, I don't think that Paul's mission is a mission of relevance. I don't, I don't think it's that. I, I, I think... You know, you could just say, well, we should just go back to the old time religion. That's what the world needs. They, they, they need fire and brimstone and preaching the gospel right between the eyes. And that's what people need to hear. And I, and I would agree with that in, in theory, not in application, meaning that I don't think the truth of Christ or the church changes. It shouldn't change. I mean, that's part of the problem is when you change it all the time, it, 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 what value is it? It's kind of like currency at some point. If you're allowing your currency to be driven by outside forces and find its value through outside forces, then then there's no basis, there's no center that remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the way that God describes himself in scripture, he, he reveals himself saying, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
I, I am unchanging. I am, I am who I am. And that doesn't change. And, and so you, you find these movements that are saying the faith needs to change. Christianity needs to evolve. It needs to become more enlightened. It's a very Gnostic uh, kind of view, like the Old Testament God is this mean, evil God, you know, harsh God. But Jesus represents the new, more, you know, enlightened God that we should be following. And this is just kind of a weird, oh, you get in this weird space. I don't think that Vander Clay is after that. I think, I think that he would reject that, I think. But I think he's trying to have these conversations as opposed to debates with people to try to discover a way forward that, that the church can help people find meaning in a world that is, that is often stripped of meaning. Okay, that's enough about Vander Clay. Check out his stuff, but he puts out a ton of content, and the content's very informal. It's often him just, you know, riffing on something. It's it's him uh, talking about somebody else's podcast, like I'm going to do today. He'll play a section which I'm not going to do, and then he'll kind of deconstruct that a little bit. Or it's or it's these conversations with one or multiple people, and they're just exploring different ideas. and And he always brings a pretty solid approach. He's, he doesn't seem to be. Uh, trying to bring innovation or, or, or departure from the truth, but he's also giving people space to be who they are. And I find this, it's just, fa I'm fascinated by this. I, I would not say that I feel hundred uh, percent, I'm not all in on Vander Clay. That, that's not to say that I don't trust him, etc. cetera, uh, but I'm not all in because I just, I'm not quite sure yet. I'm kind of observing still where he's coming from and what his project is about. Maybe sometime, if I get lucky, because he, you know, he's he's a pretty popular guy. But if I could get him on the podcast, it would be great to explore his project. Like, what are you all about? Why are you doing this? I highly recommend you check him out. I mean, you're not going to be able to consume all his content. There's a lot of it. Some of it out there that's really thought provoking. All right, so he's got this BJ Campbell on, and there was one thing that they were talking about. It was kind of the theme of the whole the whole discussion was really around uh, kind of secular modernity. The title is Why Secular modernity can't stand up to the new religions with BJ Campbell hand-waving freak outery. And essentially they're talking about how modern society is struggling to stand up to the new religions. So what are the new religions? They're not, they're not Christianity or Islam or Judaism or Hinduism uh, or, or, or Buddhism. Th those are not the new religions. I mean, those are the ancient religions that have been around for quite a long time. What they're talking about really, when they talk about the new religions, it, it's the wokeness. It's the religion of wokeism. And I've often thought to myself and made this argument more f in person with people. I'm not sure I've ever articulated it here on the podcast that wokeism really is a religion. If, if, you, look at, uh, the, if you look at Christianity, if you look at the New Testament, and you look at its depiction of the Pharisees. Now, for those of you that have never been exposed to Christianity, the Pharisees, they, they show up a lot in the Gospels during Jesus' time. In the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they were sects of Jews that, that were very big on keeping Jewish law, the purity laws, the holiness laws, the, the you know laws for living. So they're very big. And the idea being that if, you, that, that if you kept the law perfectly, then you were right with God. It's how you were right with God. And the law being 
you know, don't touch this, don't eat that. On this day, you must perform this sacrifice. On that day, you must perform this um, deed. You know, avoid these people. Don't go to these places. Don't say these things. I mean, very, very strict laws. And you see some of these kinds of laws translate over into uh, into into Judaism now. I mean, there are certain foods that are that are you know that Jews are not allowed to eat. They can't eat pork. Uh, they're not supposed to combine. I th- forgive me if I'm getting this wrong. Any Jewish listeners? Dairy with uh, beef. Some of those kinds of things. So, so a cheeseburger with bacon, uh, n- not happening if you're if you're an observant Jew and if you keep uh, if you keep a um, Orthodox kitchen. And, and so, you know, the other thing is like the rabbi has to bless the food. So, you know, you, you, you buy something from the store, uh, has this, is this food blessed? Is it, is it okay? Did it go through that? Or if it's not, you're really not supposed to eat it. So you'll, you'll find things are parv or, um, I keep wanting to say halal, which is, which is the Muslim version of this, but, uh, I don't know why I'm going blank. I, I grew up in a very Jewish part of the country, um, a lot of Jewish friends. Of course, the term, and I don't know why I went blank on this, the term is kosher, keep a kosher kitchen. I have, I'm embarrassed. I mean, this has been a big part of my life growing up. All right, so so we have all those laws, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they had different uh, perspectives on, on the Messiah and end times and so on and the resurrection of the dead. But these groups were very, very legalistic. And you find Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, butting up against them, saying, you think you understand the way to God. You think you understand the way to righteousness. You think that you have good religion. And you think these things because you you think that you keep the law better than everyone. You're perfect in your keeping of the law. And you accuse me, Jesus, of being a sinner because I talk to prostitutes I talk to publicans, I, you know, I, I, I drink wine. I spend time, not that drinking was a sin back then, but I spend time with drunkards and sinners and tax collectors, you know, the, the awful of, of society, the, the dregs. And so because I'm interacting and touching these people, even, I've even done miracles on the Sabbath, meaning I've healed somebody on the Sabbath, which is the same as doing work on the Sabbath. Here I've, I've, I've healed someone. I've cast out demons. I've given someone sight. I've allowed them, or I've raised them from the dead. And you're furious with me because I broke a law. So he said, you think that you're so pure and that you're righteous before God, but actually you completely are misunderstanding what God is all about. And so as I've looked at the woke kind of movement, the social justice movement, this this hyper-progressivism, this, this, we're going to cancel anybody that doesn't agree. We're going to cancel anybody that, that sins, essentially. It, it's become clear to me this is a very religious movement, very religious movement. It, they have laws. They have rules that you must adhere to. If you break the rules, you are a, are a foul. You're unrighteous. If you're unrighteous, you're cast out of the group. You're cast out of society. You become an unwashed and undesirable. You become less than human. You have to believe the right things. You have to do the right things. You have to say and think the right things. You have to participate in the right things. You have to reject all the wrong things. It's very religious. Progressivism is very religious. And what's interesting about it, and and this is what B.J. Campbell and Paul Vanderclay brought up. This isn't the main thing that I want to talk about, but 
What's interesting is there's no mechanism for salvation in the woke religion. So it's very religious. You can find yourself right with God or not right with God. You can, you know, God or, or the gods or the mob or whatever it is. You, you, there are very specific prescribed ways to behave and all that kind of, it's very religious, very legalistic, very, um, very much structured as a way to live your faith out. And yet there is no mechanism for salvation. There's no mechanism in this religion that tells someone how they can find salvation, how they can find life, how they can be freed and forgiven. There's no mechanism for that. There's no mechanism for forgiveness. And this is, a, this is, this is not surprising in a secular, scientific, quote-unquote, religion. Uh, religious system. But here's the interesting point that I wanted to, to bring to the table that these guys are talking about that just got me thinking. And this point is specifically that the challenge with wokeness is that it's always changing. What was woke yesterday is not necessarily woke today. What is woke yesterday is not necessarily woke today. And what you find is that the, that the wokeness, the progressivism, because it's moving all the time, because it's progressing, because it's changing, it's ever changing, it's ever moving, you can't pin it down. And so yesterday, you may have been part of the in-group. You may have been a feminist yesterday, and that meant that you were in and you could spew vitriol on those that are not feminists. You could, you could hate men and you could hate the patriarchy and all, all these kinds of things. And yet today, since wokeism is now redefining what it means to be a woman, that I, as a man, can decide that I just don't feel comfortable being a man anymore and that I can identify as a woman to the degree now that I can engage in sporting activities as a woman, that I can physically pummel women in the ring, that I can outswim them, outlift them, outbox them, all these things because I'm a man who now identifies as a woman. We've redefined femininity. We've redefined the feminine sex, not the feminine gender. Gender is a construct. That's what they tell us. Quite frankly, gender is a term used in grammar. You're born with a sex. You're male or you're female. But because we are now redefining those people that yesterday used to be at the forefront of wokeness, now have a decision to make. Are you going to actually reject what you used to think in order to continue to be righteous, to be adhering to the law, because the law has changed. And heaven help you if you don't change with it. This is the whole Dave Chappelle thing. Dave Chappelle got in trouble for saying he's with Team Turf. Those of you that are like, what's a turf? <laughs> uh, a turf, my friends, is... One of these people that we're talking about, this is somebody that's been left behind. So a TERF, according to the dictionary, is a feminist who excludes the rights of transgender women from their adv advocacy of women's rights. And I think it, it's, um, 
I got to, it, it stands, it's an acronym. So yeah, the acronym is Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. This is where yesterday you were at the forefront. You were leading the vanguard of the charge against conservatives and the patriarchy. You were super woke as a radical feminist. Now today, if you don't embrace the idea that women now are not just people with the female genitalia born women, you're not fighting for them. Now you have to fight for men posing as women or else you're actually exclusionary, which means you're no longer woke. You're part of the problem. You're a turf. So it's fascinating to me how this thing just changes. And this is what uh, B.J. Campbell and Paul Vanderclay brought up. And B.J. Campbell's point is this thing is just ever changing. And I think the insight for this is that you can't, and this is what we do. This is often what we do, whether you're a Christian, whether you're on the right, whether you're, you know, whatever you're conservative, whatever you are, we tend to go after the the situation. We tend to go after the idea, not the ideology. We tend to go after like whatever the issue is. So if it's a matter of men competing in women's sports, we go after that. If the liberal, you know, it's it's the classic. Have you seen what the liberals did today? And we attack that. We attack that. We attack that. The problem for us is it's fine to attack that. It's it's great entertainment. I can sit here every Sunday, every weekend, do a podcast, bring up the latest. And I do this from time to time and unpack it. I can attack it. I can go, oh, you can turn on all these Ben Shapiro, Tucker Carlson. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I like Tucker. People get offended. You like Tucker. He's horrible. I think Tucker does a good job often. I'm not always on his side, but... He often does a pretty good job, but you, you can listen to all these folks who are going to chase after whatever happened, whoever did it in the news today. And, and there's some value to that. There's some entertainment value. You also hope that going after them, unpacking something helps people say, well, wait a minute, let me, I, I didn't realize this. Let me think about it differently. But, but the interesting thing is this is, this is cancer. Progressivism, wokeism, it's a cancer that, that's ever mutating. It's mutating. And you think you're playing whack-a-mole. You whack it on the head thinking, if I could just whack it fast and hard enough, how about that for an ISO, uh, I can knock this thing out. I can, I can eliminate it. And the, and the thing is, as soon as you whack it, it's like whack-a-mole. Another one pops up here. Another one pops up there. It's mutating faster than we can, than we can knock it back. It's mutating to the point where even the people within the woke community, if there is such a thing as the woke community, which is more and more just the world we're living in, your neighbors and my neighbors, it, it's, it's happening so fast that even they are disoriented. Often they are finding themselves on the wrong side of history. And so what ends up happening is this forces you, and this is a demoralization. This is, the interesting thing here is it's a demoralization because what it forces you and they and I and everybody to do is you're not just making a decision once. You're not saying, look, I reject fill in the blanks. I reject uh, alcoholism. I, I reject theft. I reject pornography. I reject all these things. You're not making a statement or a stand. It's forcing people to constantly have to reevaluate and reject and reject and reject. You can't just make a one-off rejection. You have to constantly be vigilant, constantly be checking. 
constantly be watching because there's always a new variant just rolling, rolling, rolling. It's fascinating. It's kind of, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the OODA loop. I've done some videos. I've talked about the OODA loop on the podcast, but essentially, um, the OODA loop is, is an acronym that stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. OODA is observe, orient, decide, and act. And then you loop it, meaning you do it over and over and over again. Now, the OODA loop was originated by Colonel John Boyd. As I said, I've done some videos on this. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll put a link in, in, the, in the show notes, and I think there's a podcast on as well. But Colonel John Boyd was an Air Force colonel, United States Air Force. He, really genius of a guy. And, and essentially, this was a, a, an air combat methodology or system that he developed. America used to have this philosophy back before the OODA loop popped up. And I want to say he came out with this in the 50s. I could be wrong. I'll, um, I'm scanning a document here as we talk. I don't remember when the OODA loop became uh, a thing, but I know, I, and I've got this document. It's, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's an article he wrote called Destruction and Creation, which is kind of like the beginning of this, but that, that, that's from like 1976, 1970s. Anyway, long and short is America used to always rely on power. We just want to be the most powerful in the air. And so we build jets and ships and everything that just, it's all about brute strength. And that was how people thought. Like if you can build the most powerful fighter jets and the power, most powerful bombers, then no one can beat you. And what Boyd realized is actually there's something else going on here and, and speed may be more important than power. And not just speed in a straight line, but like maneuverability. Because if a fighter pilot's coming into a situation, there's going to be a combat air air air, air combat situation. Fighter pilot sees his opponent. If he can observe the environment around him, and then quickly orient himself based on what he's observing, so that he has a superior position, then he can decide from that position what am I going to do, and he can do it. When he does that, when he acts, he is changing the environment. Every action that that fighter pilot uh, commits, changes the environment. Every time you act, you're changing the environment for your opponent. And so the OODA loop concept is the more you can, the faster you can go through your loop, you can observe, orient, decide, and act. The, and if you can loop it, you're changing the environment so quickly that your opponent becomes disoriented. They're trying to orient themselves, but because you're quicker than them, they're saying, well, wait a minute, he's here. No, wait a minute, he just fired. I've got to move over here. Oh, wait a minute, he's over there. And they're, they're tr now reacting to you. They're disoriented and they're just reacting, trying to stay alive. And that gives you the ability to thrive, to succeed and to overcome your opponent. And so I bring up the OODA loop because if you look at this wokeism and the way that it just evolves and mutates and changes, you know, for us that are conservatives, for us that are kind of pulling back from thousands of years of uh, not pulling back, we're drawing from, I meant to say, thousands of years of human history, of society, Western civilization, scripture, all these things, the, the classics we're drawing from to structure and order our societies, to structure our institutions like our families, uh, education and all these things. We're drawing from things that have been long established that are stable. And now we're dealing with an enemy that is just completely 
seemingly out of control. It's mutating and changing faster than its own adherence can, adherence can keep up with. And in the process of doing this, it, it demoralizes everybody because what it does, and it disorients even its own adherence, because what it's doing is it's forcing people over and over and over again to reobserve, reorient, make another decision, and potentially act. And every, every observation, orientation, decision, and action then changes everything. And people end up becoming demoralized because at a certain point, they get overwhelmed. They don't know where they are. They're disoriented to the point where they're now making decisions just to stay alive. And what I mean by this is people are now making decisions just to make sure they're okay. Am I, am I in the in-group? Am I going to get canceled? Am I going to lose my job? Are my friends still going to accept me? They're not even making decisions based on principles anymore. I, I don't think if you were to ask the wokists if they could articulate the underlying fundamental principle that animates and informs their value system, their decisions, their behaviors, that they could articulate that very simply. How could they? Because it's, it's seemingly random. Now, I think it's this way by design. And I say design. I don't mean that there's some gang in a back room somewhere designing this thing. But I can tell you for sure this thing is designed. It's satanic. It's principalities and powers. This is demonic. And you're like, oh, Mike, please. Hey, look, do whatever gymnastics you have to do in your mind to get this to work. This is not by chance. If this, were, if this were by some chance or there's, like, there's one guy who came up with a bad idea and now we're stuck with it in society, you could eliminate it much easier. This is a long haul thing that transcends you and me. This isn't something that was decided in a room in 1984 and now is being played out because there's some big conspiracy. There are totally conspiracies or people pushing this stuff forward. Don't get me wrong. There are bad actors in this world today. This thing has been marching for a couple hundred years. This is the fruit of the Enlightenment, by the way. You might not like to hear it. You might think, no, the Enlightenment's uh, positioned against postmodernism. It's positioned against all this stuff. It's about rationalism. And so this is completely the fruit of the Enlightenment. A lot of this postmodernist, now progressive, I mean, progressivism, it's like the marriage of Enlightenment individualism liberality with, with anti-Enlightenment, <laughs> you know, German reactionary philosophy from guys like, you know, Kant and Kierkegaard and, and uh, not Hume, um, uh, Hegel and all these guys going forward into Foucault and, you know, Adorno and all these schmucks. It's like the marriage of those two things. You wouldn't have it if it weren't for the Enlightenment. Now, am I saying, oh, I don't like the Enlightenment. I wish we could go back to the Dark Ages. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to be intellectually curious and intellectually honest and say, I think this is where it comes from. If you have a problem with that, check your own ideology. Maybe, maybe you've got an ax to grind. Give it a consideration. Think about it a little bit. I'm not trying to attack anybody. I'm just saying, I think this is where it comes from. You can't go back. You can't undo things. But my point being, this has been going on for hundreds of years. You can't tell me that, A, it's not purposeful. And if it is purposeful and it's been going on for hundreds of years, then who's behind it? It can't be human. I don't know any people that are 500 years old, do you? So what's interesting about this, though, is it is demoralizing because it forces people 
to lose their orientation, their orientation to the truth, their orientation to what's good, their orientation to their humanity. And they're, and they're choosing this. They're just overwhelmed and they're like trying to survive. And this happens on both sides. So I think on one side, meaning the, the, the left, the side of the left, they're getting consumed by it. The cancer's overwhelming them. They're trying to keep their head above the water, but they know that they're on, like they're trying to be faithful to their team. Their team keeps changing the rules. They're confused. And, and they're either getting swept along with the current. You get a few of them that kind of stop for a minute and go, hold on a second. I, I, you know, Joe Rogan's in the news right now. Yeah, he's one of them. I think he's a liberal that is kind of trying to question this, but he's trapped. He's got a $100 million agreement with Spotify. He can't do whatever he wants. I mean, that was the thing he crowed about. Hey, YouTube can't cancel us. We can do whatever we want. We're going to Spotify. It's going to be safe. Well, that that's turned out to be quite interesting. But Joe Rogan is one of these guys. Dave Rubin's another one, if you don't know his name. I, I would say even uh, Jordan Peterson. He's one of them. Now, I'm not calling him a leftist progressive, but he look, he comes out of the liberal tradition, He hasn't, and he's yet to reject it. I don't think he needs to. I don't, I don't mean to say like, oh, if you come out of the liberal tradition, you're evil. We're all coming out of the liberal tradition. Unless you came from the old country, you barely speak English, and you're still part of the Greek Orthodox Church, and you're just kind of minding your own business. You don't have a television. You, you work some, you know, you're cleaning toilets somewhere. You don't have any digital devices. You know, unless you're divorced from society, I guess if you're, if you're Mennonite or Amish, I mean, but almost all of us in this country are coming from or out of or deeply uh, immersed in the liberal tradition. It's, it's next to impossible in this world to not be immersed in this thing. But if you're on the left, you are becoming overwhelmed by this and you're demoralized because you're just having to give up on what you think is right or true. You may have had principles, but this thing is, is, is metastasizing so quickly that you're just having to go along with it. You're, every, you're faced with new decisions. What's the latest religious practice? What's the latest religious standard? What is the, re the latest religious belief that I have to embrace to be in with my group? And you get extra points, and B.J. Campbell brings this up in his talk with Vander Clay. You get extra points if you're the one that kind of pushes forward. If you're on the outer edge where you're like, here's the new thing, you get standing in the community because you brought the new thing. So you're incentivized to become demoralized, to lose your morals. And this is where some of the old guard liberals are like, hold on a second. I thought we were for free speech. I thought we were for fighting for the man. Fighting, fighting for, that's a, that's a Freudian. I thought we were for fighting the man. We're for free speech. They're more libertarian. They do what you want, man. Smoke pot, have sex and drugs. You know, yeah, rock and roll. Okay, we're into it. Not anymore. Those old school liberals are, are lost. I'll give you an example of a demoralized old school liberal. Neil Young. Neil Young. Oh, he's the poster boy for fighting the man and rock and roll and drugs and all this. Like, oh, Neil Young, he's the great American liberal. He's a leftist. He fights, you know, he's totally about... His whole brand was fighting the machine and fighting the man and being true to yourself. And look at him saying, ah, I won't be on the same platform as Joe Rogan because Joe's spreading misinformation. Joe's not allowed to say these things. Joe's not allowed to talk to anyone that's in the out group. At the same time, Neil Young, multi, multi-millionaire, made, made off of his brand of being Fight the Man. At the same time, he's, his, his content owned by interests that also are invested into pharma, big pharma, so what a surprise. 
at the same time, never had a problem being on the same platform as people like, uh, you know, R. Kelly and Combs and all these like, you know, rapists and, and fraudsters and, and criminals and like, no problem. It never made a peep about that. Wasn't, a, wasn't offended that anybody disgusting or nasty was sharing the platform with them. You know, people that would, that would force themselves on underage girls over and over and over again and get away with it. For, never had a problem with that. No, I wasn't worried about that. But now Joe Rogan interviews someone that questions the narrative of the man Oh, and Neil Young's really upset. And now all the other, all the other old school, you know, baby boomer rockers now are going to just jump on board. Oh, we're so upset. That's demoralization. There's a group who really thought those baby boomer, those boomer musicians, oh, they're, they're rebels, they're protesters, they're fighting the man, they're fighting the system. Oh, what, what morals they had. They were so high-minded. They were so much better than you and I because they were standing for the things that really matter. Look at them now. They're pathetic. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. They're such sellouts. It's disgusting. They're irrelevant. But why is that? It's because you can't keep up with wokeism. You become demoralized. And to be in the in-group, you got to do what they say. On the other side, it's hard for us as conservatives, as right-wingers and so on, because they're always changing. And what we end up doing is we try to attack the latest thing of the day. This is so stupid, but it's so dumb. Look what they're doing today. That's crazy. That has no effect because what you complain and attack, what you complain about and attack today is passe tomorrow. And so what you find yourself in is the situation where you're also just reacting to Wokeism, wokeism, progressivism is driving the OODA loop and you are just reacting. So today it's transgender women's rights. And tomorrow, who knows what it's going to be? Now, this would be okay if this were just a thing that were out there that didn't really affect you and I. Like maybe it affects us, but not really. Something we can just watch from a distance you know, it's just something going on, but it's like, yeah, you know, it doesn't, you know, hey, I, I you know, I, I, I see this stuff on the news. It upsets me. But at the end of the day, I like I'm doing my thing. It's, it's not really affecting me. Here's the, here's the thing. We, we went to church today and we like this little church. We, we've been going to it just on and off. It's, it's literally a couple streets over from us. We bought a house here in Charleston and, and there's a, there's a, uh, there's one of those charter schools, a few, uh, one street over. Nice little place. I guess it's, I guess it, you know, look, I'm past this age, but it's a very desirable char charter school. And why wouldn't it be? It's near Gaston Manor now. So, so <laughs> of course, but uh, this church rents the space there. And we know some of the, we know someone that goes there when we first came. They said, you got to come to our church. So funny enough, it's, it's right next door. So we said, yeah, we'll start, we'll visit. And we like it. A lot of young kids. We're the olds there. We're the old people. And a lot of young people, you know, either single, young single kids, college kids, young married couples, just starting to have babies and all that jazz. But, but, uh, and we've liked it for the most part. But a few weeks ago, one of the messages, I, I, there's some things that the pastor, and he's a young fella. He's got to be in his 30s. And this, there's a danger right there. But, you know, I'm old enough. It's like, okay. But there's some things he said that just were off. They're just off. Uh, I'm not going to get into all that. So I was like, okay, we talked about, it. I was pretty upset about it. We got home and I was like, yeah, here we go again. It's just so hard. And I don't mean off like, well, you know, it didn't line up with my theology. It's like bringing in Marxism and some of that stuff. And I just like, oh, here we go. 
And I did some research. I bought a couple books. Some of the things that he's referred to, I'm going to read through and just see where he's coming from. I, I think I know. Uh, and, and, and being a young guy, he's trying to figure things out too. So I, I'm going to be hard on him in some ways because he's leading people and he's going to lead them astray. Uh, I'm concerned about that. On another level, he's a young guy. Uh, I believe he loves the Lord. And, you know, look, he's he doesn't know. I mean, I think he's getting into things because they're exciting to him, they're revelations to him, but I don't think he's got enough context or enough uh, theological depth to really understand, you know, the flaws in, in where these things lead to. So we're walking in today and they often will hand out like a, you know, like a, a, a four by six card. It'll have, you know, kind of the main points, maybe a couple scripture verses that you can use and you can take notes on the back. I'd take one. Okay, thank you. And as we're walking in, that's in the front door. Then you go into the gymnasium to sit down and they're handing out cards like, oh, no, I got I I got one already. Let me see what you got. So I flash the card. Oh, no, no, no. This is a different card. You have to have this one. So the young lady hands me the card. I sit down. I take a look while we're waiting for the service to start and it's Black History Month and it's got a collage of of uh, Barack Obama and MLK and just some other faces on there. And I flip it over and it's Black History Month. Now we're in February. So of course this is, then uh, it's got a list of things that you can read, watch, do, and talk about. And, and, and because they want you to, to start celebrating Black History Month. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Before the service starts, they do this little video montage about Black History Month. I think all these people from the church kind of voiceovers while they're flashing all these images related to black history uh, and, and the plight of the black person in America. Uh, it's interesting to me, like they've got this silhouette of, of these three people with, you know, ropes around their neck and some guy in a cowboy hat with a, with a shotgun to their head. It's like, okay, but that was like, how, how, I don't think I've seen anything like that in my lifetime. I, I, why are we, why are, but okay, okay. But you know, they're talking about, we gotta be loving and we gotta be the church. We gotta, we gotta fight for social justice. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Why am I bringing this up? This is not to slag the church. This is an issue that I have to deal with. And I'm just saying to my wife, Lydia, like, you know, what's our place here? I'm not sure that our place is here, first of all. Uh, but what's our place here? So I'm, I'm in my, as far as the OODA loop is concerned, I'm in my observe uh, phase. I'm just observing for a while. I, and, and Lydia's great. She's like, look, um, you know, let's talk. I mean, she's good about talking it through, but she's saying, ultimately, I, I'll, I'll defer to you. I, I'll trust your judgment on this one. So we're just trying to figure this out. We really love the kids there. Um, some, just some good people there. And, and so, and we want to be available to those people. All right. Why do I bring this up? You know, we may think that some of this progressivism and wokeism is like, it's just ridiculous, it's extreme, but it has nothing to do with us. This is infiltrating every aspect of human life. You can't watch a Netflix show. You can't watch a little entertainment without being propagandized about feminism and transgenderism and homosexuality and poly whatever and all this. It just, you're just, it's rammed down your throat. It's not even subtle anymore. You, you can't, you can't engage the school system without all this stuff happening. You can't even engage your, your right to franchise without, without all this stuff at the, you can't go to the library. Your kids are going to have to have, you know, um, story time with the cross dressers. I mean, and I know you might say, well, these are extreme, but they're not extreme. Look around you. This is an innocuous little Baptist church. This is one of these kind of hip, young Baptist churches. It's Baptists. Baptists used to have that, uh, you know, reputation for being fundies, fundamentalists. We're not Baptists, uh, by the way. The problem that I have with this 
is not that they're talking about Black History Month. The problem I have with this is they're saying, look, and, and their argument is, well, we want to be culturally aware. But I think that's disingenuous. I think they're being disingenuous with themselves and with the people. I, I would agree. You want to be culturally aware. You need the gospel, not to be relevant, but you need, the, you need to be culturally sensitive. You don't walk into a culture that interprets a red shirt as the sign of, uh, that, that you're a prostitute and all the missionaries are wearing red shirts. You kind of go, yeah, you don't wear red because these people, they, I mean, to us, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, but, but to them, it means something else. So you want to be culturally uh, fluent so that you can communicate, engage respectfully and so on. You can make the argument, we want to understand Black History Month, but we want to look at it through the lens of the gospel. We're going to, we are going to make Black History Month, BLM, social justice, wokeism, and all this kind of stuff. We're going to make it give an account in light of scripture. But what they're doing here is just the opposite. Because what you want to do is presume that the, that, that the faith received the tradition of the church that scripture, that Christ crucified and risen, the gospel is the truth, that the truth is actually personified in Jesus. That's where you're supposed to start as a Christian. And that all things now, he is the yardstick by which all things are measured. Yet what they're doing is saying, no, we're just accepting that social justice is true. We're accepting Black History Month. We're accepting the plight of the black person and the narrative that, that we, that's, that's embraced around this as the truth. And now we're going to make the faith and we're going to make the church and we're going to make the Christians give an account to show themselves to be true. Where do they need to change to line up with the truth of the woke religion? This is the world that we are living in. Now you're saying, Mike, that's just your experience. Yeah, I get that. I'm just using this as an example, but look around you, spend some time, look around you, look at the way that employers are behaving, look at the way that major brands are behaving, look at the way that your church group is behaving or your club that you're a part of or your civic group or whatever. Look at the way that your friend group behaves. I'm not saying that we need to mock things like Black History Month, and I'm not saying that that Blacks have had it great in America. They haven't. It's been kind of a it's been kind of a crappy run for them. I get that. I'm not going to lay that all at the feet of systemic racism and, and, and you know white supremacy. I would lay that at the feet of man's sinful nature. See, the gospel's already got answers for these things. The the, the faith has already figured these things out. It already has really good answers for all these things. And it has a way for redemption, which wokeism doesn't. There's no redemption in wokeism. It's just a hermeneutic of suspicion. It's a hermeneutic of guilt. It's a hermeneutic of blame rather than a hermeneutic of beauty. I would highly encourage you to check this out. Look, it's a two-hour podcast conversation. It's, it's a doozy, but it's interesting. And not everything's perfect. And, and these are just human beings. I'm not lifting up Paul Vanderclay or BJ Campbell, but it's a really interesting dialogue between the two of them. And I think there's a lot there uh, worth chewing on. So, guys, I hope you found this useful. I hope you found it thought-provoking. Would love to know, as always, what you think. Get in touch with me. You can email me directly. Just go to my website. That's MikeGaston.com. You can fill out the contact form. I would also highly encourage you 
sign up for my newsletter. I got a free newsletter that I kick out uh, pretty regularly these days. We're exploring the concept of maps, maps of meaning, navigating, finding our place, and so on. I would love for you to be a part of that conversation. So sign up for that. It's free, and uh, it's it's just great to be able to connect with you guys in other ways besides this podcast. I'm really grateful for each and every one of you. And as I say every week, I mean it with all of my heart. I love you all. I really do. Thanks for being my audience. Thanks for being there. Thanks for the interaction. Love you guys, and I will catch you in the next episode. Thank you.